Welcome back to the Harkers. And on this week's episode, I've got a very special guest. It is the founder of the spin-off, Duncan Grieve, who also hosts his own podcast, The Fold. And I basically tricked him into talking to me so that I could have my own personal episode of The Fold by just making him talk about the things I love to listen to him talking about on The Fold. So we have some great conversations, talk about his time at Real Groove back in the day when he first started writing for them, all the way through to him applying to be editor, being told he couldn't be editor because he didn't have a degree, getting that degree and fucking becoming editor. Uh, All the way from there to, you know, the end of the open internet and how Duncan describes himself as an optimist and then basically says that we're completely fucked. Um, I loved all of it. We had a great time. Um, We talk about kind of macro digital media online stuff but it's always brought back to a kind of um, music and media landscape and I think it's really valuable for anyone operating online which is everyone these days so yeah love the conversation Um, I hope you enjoyed as much as I enjoyed doing it thanks to Duncan for his time and uh, yeah enjoy Duncan I thought I'd start by admitting something which is the fold is only my second favorite spin-off podcast but i listen to it pretty much as often as i listen to gone by lunchtime um i mean gone by lunchtime is just a better podcast in every conceivable way so if you listen to them both i'd find it kind of i would think there was something wrong with you if you liked it more um and and I, even I think that it's like an imperfect podcast that it, it has its moments, but they're not frequent enough. But I appreciate that. I still appreciate it. I still think it's kind of the only space that I can like, like some of the conversations than the people you have on the fold. Like, I, I I just feel like if anyone else kind of pitched that and tried to make it happen, someone would be like, oh, no one really wants to listen to that. And mm. that might be true for most people, but like, it's like a podcast for that 1% of psychos like myself that like really wants to listen to that stuff and can't get it anywhere else. So I really do appreciate you putting it on. Oh, thanks, man. I mean, it's definitely like the people who like it tend to think they really like it. And that's the whole audience. Everyone else is completely indifferent to it and rightly so. But no, <laughs> look, I appreciate that. I, I hear it reasonably often. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Um, I wanted to start, all the way back when you started work or started um, interacting with Real Groove. And I just wanted to kind of take you back there and kind of get a sense of your experience of what the intersection of like music and culture and media was in New Zealand at that time when you started writing for Real Groove. Uh, Yeah, that's, that's a while ago, but very much where it all began for me i mean i so i was a music like my, my first kind of proper love as a you know as a human who got to make their own decisions was was music and um and i loved both the thing itself and the media around it so i would buy mainly you know i, I grew up in the uk so i would mainly grow up by english music magazines um in my sort of teens in the 90s um and then somehow I came across Real Groove. I'd, I'd already read Rip It Up and I thought it was fine, but I came across Real Groove, which was edited then by a guy called John Russell. And um, 
And I was just shocked by how good it was. Um, in some ways, in a lot of ways, it was better than I thought it was better than the English music magazines, so the, the weeklies and monthlies that I was reading, just because it felt like it had a more distinctive voice and point of view. Um, and so I read it for probably three or four years. Um, and, you know, like I had a couple of other friends who, who would who bought it and we would discuss it obsessively. And we like writers like Troy Ferguson, Grant McCollum, Kerry Buchanan were like probably the critics anywhere in the world that we were most interested in. So I was like a, a real fan of it. It wasn't a sort of a passive engagement. Um, and then eventually wrote a handwritten letter. I've recounted the story before, so forgive me if you've heard it, but to, to John Russell, um, who was the you know, editor and saying, look, I love your magazine, but you should cover live music because that's where the action is for New Zealand. And um, six weeks later, he called me and um, offered me a job um, which kind of blew me away and yeah I guess in terms of its place in the culture um, like it just felt like it felt like we had these very cultural spheres you know fashion music film um, particularly uh, and and food I guess and but the magazines were where the action was where, where all this stuff was litigated and discussed and understood and um, and I really loved that about them, um, and uh, and yeah, that was, I guess what what drew me in and, and ultimately got me writing for it. And what was the the live scene that was happening at the time that you were clearly involved in and thought really needed to be covered? Like what what was happening there that made you so excited about it? Um, I mean, the, the live scene was like. I guess I was thinking about kind of the like young artists that were maybe unsigned or kind of self-releasing sort of in, in that realm. It was, and um, so I was going to shows quite often, like my partner at the time was um, uh, in this band, The Coolies, and they would play shows with bands like Xanadu and Fake Purr, um, and and I thought all of those bands were really, really interesting. And they were yet they were also marginal even for BFM at the time, which was probably a more it's not like it was a commercial proposition even then, but it like it was championing bands like Rhombus and Fat Freddy's, um, which felt like they had big audiences and like you know, the struggles that BFM's going through now weren't really didn't feel like they were apparent at the time. It was like it was a big part of the media scene. I might even have had a show on BFM at the time, but certainly like I felt like I was at the margins of the station, which is funny to think about now. Um, but yeah, so those kind of bands will play like the King's Arms, or you know, I remember reviewing Sheila Rock, which was Lady Six's um, band from Christchurch. Um, there was just like a, a lot of and, and like hardcore bands from Hamilton and um like west auckland and there were just these kind of and, and you know like you had the early stirrings of, of dawn raid bands like res and decepticons and there were it felt like there were all these scenes um that were kind of um you know some were more focused on live than others but there were the, you could really feel 
um, that there was like a, this kind of vibrant, more sort of DIY-ish type of music in Auckland that was bubbling below the kind of the sort of radio slash labels area and i found that like super interesting and some of those bands you know most notably the mintchicks would go on to be really sort of big and significant and the mintchicks were also a, a big part of what i think they um i can't remember whether they'd started when i but they certainly emerged not long after i started writing um and so that just felt like there was this kind of real energy there and you couldn't feel it anywhere of the places that I was going to um, to find out about music. Mm. What what was the relationship between like people like yourself and and what we'll just call the like the media at the time and the musicians itself? Was it like a cordial relationship? Was it um, yeah? It's it's because it's something that I it's a very different experience now. I think with the kind of the decimation of both it seems a little bit more like um, working relationships. And I'm always curious as to what it was like, um, yeah, before the arrival of the internet, which I'm sure we'll get into. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that they were just generally oblivious. Like there was a, <laughs> the music industry felt more substantial. Um, and, you know, I had a few, I assume like, like I wasn't in it. I would go to shows. That was my only contact with musicians or, you know anything kind of like the media mm. um a few years later once i was sort of in the scene you'd, you'd kind of you know there, there were events happening all the time i'm sure that there were then i just was oblivious to them um that sort of more industry piece of it um and there was there was a bit of an antagonism um between media and musicians that felt appropriate in a weird way like i remember um i think it was chris from king loser like really getting into it with john the real groove editor at some party about the fact that he was able to earn a living out of music and chris wasn't and that was a sort of you know basically john was a yeah in his view was like a parasite on the thing um and look, I, like that, that's something I've struggled with at various times is that like, I had never haven't known many musicians who are able to make a decent living out of their craft. And they, even ones who I thought were really amazing, I've sort of, you know, like everyone else can make a living, whether that's label people or sort of people at the Music Industry Commission on New Zealand on the air, but the musicians can't really. And that's always seemed kind of fucked up to me, but, um, you know, you sort of come, come into the complexities of that over time um i don't know if that answers your no, question I, yeah i think that's it's interesting it actually reminded me of a story about the mint chicks like someone trying to interview them for like one of their first cover stories and then covering their mouths with tape and doing all that kind of stuff and yeah, i just think you just couldn't do that these days you, you'd be everyone's so desperate for a, whatever kind of shred of platform they can get that are like you're going to be on your best behavior for the most part i think yeah i mean that was a they were a special case and i yeah. remember that was simon pound who's actually um now host to one of the another spin-off podcast business is boring but um but you know like it was i mean and i can't tell how much of this was like my own perspective but like people who had like a you know a regular show like a, a bfm 
drive host or a wire host or, or certainly like the breakfast hosts felt like enormously consequential figures and completely untouchable if you were sort of a few layers out. People in bands, I was like massively intimidated by. Um, if you spoke to them, even when they knew you were in the media, they tended to be sort of contemptuous of you or, or not really suspicious. I mean, and that, that changed over time as people started to understand what I was about. But I had really antagonistic relationships with a lot of musicians. Um, like they, uh, the one, one, one artist wrote a song about me, another invented fake quotes praising them that they put on posters, um, which I thought both of those things I thought were funny. Um, and I miss all that, you know, like I think that was a good appropriate level of rancor to exist because, you know, if a critic's doing his job, he'll be regularly, you know, saying something sucks. And if a band really loves what they're doing, when someone says something sucks, they'll be really mad about it. And that's, how it should be. That's an interesting you bring that up because, yeah, I've I reminded myself of one your relationship with Six Sixty, um, oh. <laughs> but it, it, in more of a broader way, like the old websites like the Corner, which used to like run, and like and even like Simon Sweetman, who's become a bit of a meme like back in the day. But like critics were kind of like sharp and need and. And sometimes it was like that snarky era as well of like Pitchfork and the internet and stuff. And I guess because I grew up in that time period, I just, I still, I think, have a sense of like, that's just kind of how it's supposed to be. And it's too chilled out now. But as someone who was like maybe in there and operating in that system and then is also kind of matured through the media system as well, like what's your view on the kind of, yeah, antagonism or, or sharpness of that era compared to what we have now? I mean, look, the 660 is a good thing to talk about and to raise. Like, I I probably regret how um, antagonistic I was to that band and how little I considered their feelings, but also what they were doing that was really impressive. I just sort of narrowly focused on what I considered then and probably still consider now to be quite bad music. But so much of what they were doing is like, fascinating like so impressive in terms of the way that they built their careers and their relationships with bands and that they just built it out as a business and i would go on to and have written subsequently about um how you know sort of reconsidering that aspect of them as artists um but you know like it, it felt like it was and i remember once one of them, their manager approached me and just said, can you stop doing this? It's really mean and it's hurting their feelings. And I was just like, no, this is, you know, this is me doing my job. And, you know, I, th I think with hindsight, like I probably, you know, an editor should have just said, hey, you know, you've made that point multiple times now. It's probably time to find something else to talk about. Um, but, uh, you know, but I, I think broadly, but you know, I think the way you characterize it is absolutely correct. I, I really liked it when the corner emerged. I, I sort of met up with Hussein, and um, you know, I thought that that could well, was a really significant voice for a period of time. Sweetman, I never cared for his opinions, but yeah, he, he was massive, like he, you know, like it, it felt like everyone read him, whether you know, I hate reading or not. Um, and uh the, it, it was like it was early streaming like you could still you know 
where you could still you could hear everything if you really would turn it wasn't as easy as if it is now in the spotify era but it still felt like there was a a sorting mechanism role for critics um because critics before then were sort of uh, it wasn't pure consumer reports but it was a little bit like the function is to say whether you should seek this thing out whether you should buy it because you will otherwise you know hearing it is, is a bit of a mission um so whereas it became you know whereas and i still think that role exists like the sorting mechanism i don't know about you but even people i know who are in the business or who are, who are artists feel kind of a huge sense of overwhelm with the volume of music released and um the how poor the sort of editorial sorting of it is on platforms and and so on but the i guess for a variety of reasons that whole infrastructure has decayed to the point where it's just really hard to um sustain it or make a case for it and you know chris schultz has been writing lately a bit about that and i don't know if you read his newsletter but um but yeah like it's there's definitely it, when you look back on what it was how fertile it was um you definitely feel a sense that something's gone that, that had a role to play yeah i also think and and I, 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 I will move on to some other stuff but i also think um just a point to that that that's all true and while we've lost that, I think we've also lost the archival um, nature of criticism and reviews as well. Um, because yeah. they kind of made a point in time of like, this is what someone at the time of it coming out thought about it, um, puts it in a place. And I think that's a, the, the lack of context is um, around music now when it's released is one thing that really I find myself coming back to is like a real negative. Like not only how it's presented in digital space i.e like the the space before and after your music around your music is completely not controlled by you and mostly uniform and quite um, minimalist which is suits some music and doesn't suit others but um also just kind of uh suffers from the same thing that lots on the internet does especially post tiktok scroll i reckon which is just a loss of time and space like it, this content could be from any time it doesn't yeah. matter the song could be from any time and yeah i think that's a real hard thing to deal with i totally agree about the lack of that temporal anchor that um that they reduces urgency and deprives of context in a, in a way that i find quite um disorientating um and yeah like it's funny to me that we find audio culture which i think you know publishes some great stuff but it, you know, it, it's necessarily backward looking and it it does a, this great job of putting artists in their historical context, but there is no, you know, how would, I don't know how you would create audio culture content about the present because there is no, or is this, there's such a thin layer of contextual um, criticism now that it's, it's just, you know, like it's sort of unimaginable and yeah, it's one of those things that you know you can kind of see the tensions or paradoxes of the way that we fund culture in this country, where um, you know New Zealand Air funds audio culture, and that's fine. But there is no, you know, it doesn't matter that the the man the plant is shut down. There is no, <laughs> there's so, so little new content being manufactured, but we still 
assess the past. Yeah. As it will last forever. And I'm a huge fan of um, audio culture. And I think it's like literally you bring that up made me realize that, yeah, I think part of what I'm connecting to is the fact that it's reclaimed one of those things, which is the loss of time. Like, I think I enjoy audio culture because it is based in the past. It has a time to it. Like, that's the point of it. And I, mm. and I wonder if that question of like, well, how would you try and tackle the present? The, the only other thing that it makes me think is like, maybe geographical or maybe something more concrete to center things around. Like, I've kind of unknowingly done that at the moment where I'm doing a series. Where I'm just specifically, I'm only interviewing people in Christchurch and the music community. And that's the like context of the whole thing. And people are really responding to that. And I wonder if that's the aspect of it, that it, it actually, it, it still may not have the time to it, but at least now has like the space aspect to it, which almost everything else is lost. <laughs> yeah. You mean you're right. Like, like, the, the, the preeminent um, sort of cultural platforms of our time uh, are TikTok and YouTube, neither of which have any strong bias towards um, space or time. And that's, you know, that that's difficult if you're someone who's wanting to make some, something at a specific moment from a specific place. Yeah. Now, you're the founder of the spinoff. Yeah. Um, and you're one of the few people that I've interviewed that has a Wikipedia page. Um, and uh, there's two things in that Wikipedia page. One, I just want to know if it's real or not. That was, um, did you get told you couldn't be editor of Real Groove because you, cause you didn't have a journalism qualification? And then so yes. you went and got one. That's that's real? That's accurate. Yeah, that's I, I interviewed for the job when John Russell... Um, resigned and he recommended to meet me for it and this, that was shocking to me because I'd only ever been a writer I was I was working as I think still as a postie and or maybe I'd gone to work at I, I used to work as a postie six days a week and then I after that I went and worked at a data center changing tapes um, which was sort of recording you know, various data for big companies, um, at like a data center in the city and one in Albany. Um, and I, and writing was what I did on the side and I would get like 400 bucks a month for whatever I, you know, for writing a couple of features, some reviews and a live column, um, which felt really meaningful to me at the time. Felt like a huge part of my identity, but certainly financially wasn't particularly lucrative um but then i went so when john recommended me for the role i, I couldn't I, it was shocking it's the first time i'd ever considered being paid more than a trivial sum to write or, or considered a real like a job in the media um and then uh, yeah i was interviewed i made the last two and they ended up going with uh brock oliver um who sadly now since died but um they came to town and they told me explicitly that had I had a journalism qualification, I would have had the job. And that's what motivated me to go and um, go and get one. Do you, just quickly, like, how do you feel about credentialism now then? Well, I haven't heard that term, but um, well, certainly like our, the current editor of the spin-off, Madeline Chapman, phenomenally talented, doesn't have a journalism qualification 
the previous editor, Toby Manhire, phenomenally talented, doesn't have a journalism qualification, but they didn't stop him being the opinion editor of The Guardian, you know, mm. um, in London. So, you know, there are certain, I, I, I think within media and journalism, like, if, if someone can write, we'll sort of back ourselves to teach them the rest. Um, so, yeah, obviously I don't have a huge amount of respect, but there are certain professions, you know, I, I would want my doctor to have a qualification and uh, same goes with a lawyer. But um, but journalism is definitely more of a, a sort of craft that you can accumulate on the job than, than something. And it's also, so I just don't think it's particularly well taught in New Zealand. Mm. Well, it's onto the like real meat of it because you like journalism, media, and then the music world. Like, I think why I enjoy listening to the fold and um, paying attention to other stuff, even though it, some of it is more specifically focused in, say, the media world and the journalism world, is just the fact that there seems like there's so many like correlations between kind of what they used both fields kind of used to be. Um, before the internet, what the internet has done to them, kind of your ideas of funding models and business models within media and journalism versus like the kind of broken business models of music and stuff as well. Like I, I just see a lot of things in common. Um, how do you, I guess, starting with like media and journalism, the spinoff was an experiment in funding models and it's been going strong for quite a while now. We're looking around now, has the situation for funding models, are we still in this transition period? Are experiments still happening? Uh, is progress being made? Like what's the kind of state of f uh, business models in media and journalism right now? I mean, I think it's pretty bad. Like, yeah. I, I think, um, you know, I really tried to be not try to be an optimist. I think I'm just congenitally an optimist um, about people. And I, I, you know, there aren't many new phenomena that I don't find interesting in some respect. But like, I, I do think that um, you couldn't start the spinoff now. Yeah, you know, really? the spinoff was the product. Of, no, absolutely not. If you were starting it in but it was a product of a, a strange time when the social platforms, it was a product of a much more open internet where people were very comfortable, like they might bookmark pages and go to blogs. And um, there was a whole thriving ecosystem outside of social platforms, which was seen as a bit of an annex and a sorting mechanism for the rest of the internet in some respects. Um, and the spinoff really thrived during the era where, um, you know, link sharing, for example, was the core of what Facebook, or, or not maybe not the core, but a huge part of what the utility of Facebook was and the utility of what Twitter was. You'd go there to find links to pages on other much less prominent websites where you could, you know, watch a cool video or read an interesting piece of writing. And that was, that was sort of the fundamental function of it. And as and we didn't know that, but but obviously over the next ten years, very rapidly the um, social platforms figured that sending someone anywhere else was a bad idea because that was the loss of an attention minute that could be 
monetized by them. And so they gradually turn down, you know, this notion that it's revealed preference, that people just don't want to go to other places and read links, that's bullshit. Like they have deliberately reduced the quantum, like reduced the exposure of a link shared by anyone um, gradually over time um, and increase the proportion of stuff that will keep them on the platform, i.e., you know, typically short form video images um, or, or text-based posts on their own platforms. That's fine. That's within their right. But, um, you know, I, th I think that wasn't something that was kind of articulated as a long-term strategy. It might not even have been. In fact, I'm sure it wasn't a long-term strategy at the time we started it anyway. But, it, you know, so I'm not trying to imply that this was some vast conspiracy to kind of break the open internet that's just what's happened um, but it has happened and so if you were to start a new publication now you might do it on substack you know which does have some elements of the open internet by using a platform that you can own a lot more in email but um you know this idea that you could start a place and that people would would come across it and then start habitually returning to it or, or subscribing to its products it would just be such an enormous lift now so costly and how would people find out about it like the distribution side is completely broken now there is no place where you can could build that you know there's some distribution happens in places like reddit or discord but you can't control it in the same way or sort of advocate for it um so yeah, so we were just really lucky in, in many ways to start when we did. You know, we we it felt very late, but it turned out to be probably a good time to do it. There was enough energy and interest and money coming on to the internet, um, but but not but it was before the platform started breaking um, for 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 other parties. Yeah. Do you do you have any? Um... I guess grounded in in some evidence, but it could just be it could just be optimism um, for a recovery of the open internet. Not really. The idea that no, no, because the platforms are never going to change. It might be that a new platform emerges that is embraced by and connects to the open internet. Um, that that functionally has some of the quality those kind of addictive qualities that the link-based era had. But, you know, I think that, you know, the, the the evolution of the canonical form of an entertainment unit from a web page to a short-form vertical video clip um, is pretty profound. And it's, and the closer, you know, to, with any sort of new development, it always starts with young people and, young people have their behavior is even more sort of grounded in the current era and less in the old era i don't doesn't mean that they're not that they don't feel that sense of loss or or have a nostalgia to to their era even if it's not one that they personally lived through everyone knows that it's kind of sucks to live in a place where the only place you can do things is on someone some other ourselves platform um, isn't great, but they've just done such a great, uh, an incredible job of um, just 
creating a, a sort of insane gravity around them to where everything anything else would just feel hopelessly small and wouldn't generate whether it's the revenue or the audience attention to to justify its existence um i don't know yeah which, which is kind of do me i know i don't it's not like i don't believe in any future for music or journalism or or art or any kind of uh you know independent creative process it's just it's just so much harder now. The thing that would change things or could change things is if a really serious-minded government um, thought hard about what has been lost and what the structural advantages of the platforms are, because they're not shared equally. Um, you know, if it were up to me, if I had like one simple trick for fixing the internet, <laughs> I just would like that this thing section 230 which um basically means it's a u.s law it's not, it doesn't it's not even on the books here but it's sort of an assumed underpinning to the internet that um platforms aren't liable for what's published on them um and i would just repeal it you know like anything that's published on the spin-off i'm liable for it um and i think that's as it should be and it means you're very selective about what you publish but if you're you know and but if you repeal section 230 and say look cool you can you 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 keep all the advertising revenue that you generate there but but if someone defames someone or you know films a terrorist act or just does something appalling on your platform which happens every day on those platforms um you are liable you 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 can be legally held responsible whether that criminally or civilly and i think it would kind of break them and then you'd get the open internet back and mm -hmm on balance while there would be a lot of disruption for society while it figured out what that meant i can't see how that wouldn't be a better way for the world to be rather than everyone just constantly posting into this void and all the bad shit that goes along with that being completely unmediated and regulated mm. but that's a bit of an aside no no i think i have heard um discussion of that section 230 uh before and it sounds pretty reasonable to me to at least have a look at it um and you don't sound too doomy i m maybe you could react to this characterization but i think maybe what you are specifically doomy about is the online economy's ability to sustain any new organizations or institutions like groups of people trying to work together as a business because what it does seem to be able to support is a huge array, and I'm not saying this is a good thing because I think you actually just described this as a bad thing, but it does seem to be really useful for a an, an army of individual um, creators, essentially, who may all in macro trends be commenting and working towards things, but aren't actually organizing or profiting together. Yeah, look, that's a really good way of characterizing it. And I do think the creator economy is, is really interesting. I've got a piece coming, a feature coming in the next few weeks that sort of looks at some TikTok creators and how they're building their lives. And they're really, honestly, really inspiring, but they also just look crazy poor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, um, and that's sort of the problem for me is that the pipe takes all the money and so yeah, the, the there are people, obviously like Mr. Beast exists, Taylor Swift exists, like 
there are creators um you know if you use a very broad uh definition of the word who are doing incredibly well but the and even a creator middle class that that is you know like um that that is doing really interesting things and, and able to make a, a good living a living sometimes a good living but just overall the the um it, it seems kind of bleak and crazy that that uh you have such a vast number of people devoting such a huge amount of their time to a a dream of making a living on on platforms that are you know ultimately indifferent to their to their you know like they're there to their lives financially and yeah the, like organizing into institutions like obviously i i came up in that era i love the, the the time when there would be a newsroom or or a you know a um like where magazines could could have staffs you know like I, I remember metro when i was starting out there was i think there was like a, a dozen or 15 writers there and that was just a sort of given that you'd, you'd have a bunch of staff writers and i think amazing things came out of that and um you know we but so yes i, I mourn that but i don't think that, that that is like that it's necessary for there to be that facility to for for the sort of function of uh, media to to exist in the world but i do think people will be, need to be able to learn and a living from it you know and the fact that people can be at once really popular getting you know have building audiences in the tens of thousands if not the millions and completely on it and having monetizing that be their job you know like not something that that is associated with the the kind of revenues of the the parent um that i think is just you know like it's 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 just an unpleasant situation where you have huge amounts of the world doing like incredible amounts of volunteer work for like dance meta and alphabet yeah basically. and it, i i just actually kind of I was still listening, but I kind of went to like a dark little place there. Um, uh, there's that new book. I haven't actually read it yet, but I've been meaning to. It's like a book by Yanis Varoufakis, um, uh, who was the Greek finance minister during their crash. And he has a great book called um, Adults in the Room, I think it's called, which is like all about his experiences in the EU and how how the like, global system works in that sense. But he's written a new book um, basically about like calling our system today like feudal capitalism and he talks mm. more about economies but when you were talking about yeah like you described it as like volunteer work but and i think in in his view of like our system being like feudal like neo-feudal essentially like all of these tiktok creators are just kind of in the fields of digital content like tilling tilling and tilling and tilling and then all the like feudal lords of social media take away their like hard work and make the money and give them a little bit back each year um yeah well if they even give a little bit back i mean youtube has revenue share right but tiktok doesn't have any meaningful revenue share so everyone just internalizes this like idea of loss leader concepts like my content is a loss leader to monetize on a secondary business so i am now own two businesses <laughs> yeah the, the, that's exactly right i mean like 
Because the thing is, I'm, I, I am, and I know this is not particularly fashionable anymore. I'm a believer in capitalism, but I just don't think we have much of it anymore. Like, capitalism requires like the facility for very intense competition between firms, uh, and we we what we have are these really entrenched oligopolies uh, that we're that there, there is, you know, there's a reason, like it's it's unnatural for companies at the scale of Apple, Google, uh, Microsoft, um, Meta to make profit margins in excess of 30%. Like the only way that it would ever happen is if you've got this kind of grotesque, distorted, non-functioning market. And that's really what what's happened. And even when you go to something like, uh, you know, if we want to return to music, like, the fact that Spotify is organized in such a way that, uh, you know, even very serious touring, like working musicians receive like really risible compensation from it. Like that's a problem. That's, that's, you know, that, that is something that, a you know, in a previous era, a regulator would have, a serious regulator would have sat down with and and thought hard about and then then worked on solutions to but it just doesn't feel like anyone is um is doing doing that work and certainly in new zealand which you know historically we were very comfortable as a country doing some quite daring stuff you know inflation targeting with an independent central bank that's that's our innovation and um you know there, there's there's actually like quite a few examples of us taking quite daring um, innovative regulatory approaches to what we perceived as problems in our political economy and we just have no one's thinking like that in, um, in power now that's quite frustrating mm. and and you're making that point about spotify like on the eve of them introducing that um threshold for payment as well yeah. um yeah it's really interesting and like it does frustrate me because a tool in this kind of toolkit as well as regulation action would be like collective pressure. But I, because, um, because so many artists and people's lives are precarious, there is this kind of like constant, uh, desperation to kind of take all opportunities possible. And so of course I'm going to put all my music on Spotify, even though I would rather people bought it on Bandcamp or came to the shows and, that either way like spotify wins because your album's still ending up on it and none of us can kind of like even if we all everyone who is under that threshold of 200 plays or whatever it is um stopped doing uh stopped putting money in there like it's uh songs in there sorry it wouldn't really do much unless taylor swift and all these people started doing it again so yeah it's an interesting one um I don't want to take up too much of your time. So like the only other question that's directly related to what we're talking about right now and stop me if this steps a bit over your feature you're writing as well, but you've brought up quite a few times on the fold, like around funding and this idea that maybe it'll head towards like content creators themselves, like individuals being funded rather than things like, is that, is that really where you see um, kind of movement happening in our funding structure? Or, or you think that it should go that way and you don't see it happening? Oh, both, to be honest. I mean, one, I think it should. Like, as much as I'm, you know, a product of and a believer in the, the positives of the old system, um, 
you can't deny the which way the wind is blowing and where where the culture is at. And you sort of have to think like, um, if I were born twenty years ago or forty years ago, where would I be? What would I be doing? And what would be the most sort of meaningful intervention that might create more of the kind of culture the the kind of 2023 version of the culture that nourished me um 20 years ago and you know sad to say that it wouldn't be like funding more critical writing about um music it would probably be the, the funding of more uh, creators like people who are making stuff that has an audience and has a cultural component and you know sits on the platforms which i've just been railing against like you just can't pretend that that's not you know if, if you think about what because okay, there's two things right if one is like the new zealand on air is, is its foundational idea is that there's a market failure in the production of uh various forms of culture you know television um, we have the film commission for film but um television and music broadly in particular forms of television music documentary uh, drama comedy and so on um and the the on some level there isn't a market failure present in the creator economy we have got a shitload of people making um you know doing sketch comedy on TikTok, making music as, as creators that, that it plays on Spotify and YouTube. And, you know, okay, so maybe, you know, there are a lot of people doing podcasts without New Zealand on air support. Like, the, 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 it's the, by the very nature of the creator economy of user-generated content platforms, that there will be people making stuff for it. What is missing is kind of implicit in that market failure argument um, from 1989 is that, um, you know, people will need to be compensated to make these things. And right now people aren't being compensated to make these things. So, you know, like the, the TikTokers that I'm following around, they're making things that feel like they're connected to the same kind of animating spirit that produced Back of the Y and Moon TV and Eating Media Lunch when I was in my 20s. And yet they're making for TikTok and they don't want to, to make for television. Like they, they don't want to be forced to make for a platform that none of their friends watch and that doesn't interest them. But there is no way of funding them for it. So I think ultimately where this where, where this should shake out is um you know if we're going to have a belief that there should be the culture can evolve, but there should be some people who can make a living from it and who have some level of formal infrastructure around them to help them grow. And that we think that it's important for New Zealand's kind of voice and sense of self, then you have to evolve that over time. You can't just say, well, 40 minute TV dramas were the thing in 1989, so that's still the thing now. You have to say, well, okay, maybe it is 45 second sketch comedy, you know, even if some part of that feels weird to you you just have to accept it um and then you have to try and figure out a way to meaningfully engage with with those communities and that is inherently much harder like you know there's the, the they're much less controlled and controllable um for, for starters and 
figuring out what's good and what should be funded and made is, is a much more complicated decision than when you had all the gatekeepers uh, involved in making television or, or music for radio. Um, but you got to do it. And so, and, and, and they are doing it. You know, they've got this, they had a youth RFP that closed last week that um, was basically more or less written for the creator economy. And They had um, to have producers though. Yeah, and which I think is... Which is like a funny, like, it's like, yeah. That, it's, an, it's, a, it's, it's an anachronism, but I understand why they do it because this is public money and exactly. there's, there's some kind of probably safeguard that needs to be there. But ultimately, like, if I was to, again, glass half full optimist version of this, is like, I think at some point the market capture of these of the platforms will be understood by a government and they'll say cool that you're here unfortunately you don't pay any tax we're going to put a uh you know once you turn over breach a particular revenue amount if you have these particular characteristics we're going to ask for five ten percent of gross revenues to be left in new zealand and um, we'll be completely intolerant of your profit shifting kind of tax bullshit that you pull and then we'll figure out a way to distribute that to a creator economy and invariably as with spotify that will be to the excessive benefit of some and against the um the sort of marginal benefit of of a sort of a, a working class creator economy <laughs> it's, it's too complicated to make it work yeah. otherwise but so these things are all necessarily imperfect, but that is a, to me, a better acknowledging of reality than the current system we have, um, where there's just there's no funding for it, despite it being such a big proportion of what young New Zealanders are doing with their attention. Mm, yeah, I agree. Um, final question: What music are you enjoying at the moment in your life, Duncan? um that's a good question uh i feel like i'm um I, i'm i'm on some level like lost you know yeah 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 uh i don't but do you go back then or are you like is it uh, like do you go backwards to, to to comfortable things are you like um kind of just taking in what's around you that you're not picking like what 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 does it equal to this lostness well what it equals is is like like i used to when i was editing railgrove and even before i felt this intense sense that i was like on top of it and like i knew about the next thing as it was coming and i just don't feel that same kind of sense anymore and i don't know how to get it back <laughs> yeah um, and like i know that like I, I feel like a deep sense of shame about the way i listen to music now like i'm like every other idiot i listen to playlists which are composed maybe 50 percent of new music and 50 percent of, of random crap that i shazam from a tv show or while driving or something um and there is no sort of coherent approach palpable and things and that would be fine it's just that i used to be better than that and that's that's where the shame comes from <laughs> i mean like 
so in terms of music I'm, I'm, i don't want to avoid the question i like the obvious artists that like a person like me profiles is like and i really like caroline Polachek. i really like big thief um i like the sort of i i've really started enjoying a lot of kind of modern country i went to the the comb show and it blew my mind um i like this i don't even know what you'd call it like this kind of i guess it's the sort of international like third generation refractions of of hip-hop and dance hall so like the you know like the the kind of like bradford messy bradford kind of um housey garagey hip-hop sound i really like hp boys and one four i'm excited about that documentary on netflix um i I still like a lot of like beautifully constructed pop music um the kind of color egyptian me type stuff so i'm still like there i just don't I just don't feel like I have a good handle on it, you know, and I certainly don't feel like I have a good handle on what's happening in New Zealand. And that really kind of does bring us back to the very start of it because I used to feel that so intensely and love the kind of specific voice and, and character of what came from here. And now I just wouldn't, I don't even know where to find it. And I feel really bummed out about that, but I'm always hopeful that something might change. <laughs> That's a very optimistic way to to finish it. It actually, well, it reminded me a little bit of that really dark. Um, Hayden Donald wrote it, maybe for Webworm, but it was just about like coping with like growing old and losing any sense of what was happening or like relevance in the in the world, and uh, and and the and the inevitability of that, especially in the digital age. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's I didn't read that. Um, but I know Hayden well, and uh, I'm sure that applies even more so to me being a few years older than him. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I also feel like that will get solved in time. Like, like I, I, you know, again, like like I don't want to sound kind of nostalgic or um, or sort of like blindly optimistic about something which doesn't exist in the world but like i feel like in the kind of hundred thousand dollar songs a day on spotify ai is about to start churning out infinite kind of real-time personalized culture i feel like just something will rise that that where the sorting of that is valued i think Um, that's the scariest thing you've said this whole interview duncan <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to let you go. I really appreciate your time and um and and yeah, thanks for um yeah, discussing this kind of more macro, vague, future-looking stuff in the media because I find it I find it fascinating and I think the the reason it's really important is because I just think more and more people's lives no matter what their primary thing they want to do is, they're finding themselves pulled into this world at least partially and so understanding it and worrying is it starting to become quite a anxious um engulfing thing for a lot of people so i think hearing this kind of stuff and kind of you you providing a lot of clarity for it i think is really important so i very much appreciate it